Leadership is the art of giving people a platform for spreading ideas that work. Welcome to DC Local Leaders, the podcast where we talk to C-suite leaders within the DC area. Our guests share their pathways to success and the important moments that impacted their careers. Lean in as we get the inside scoop on how they are shaping their industries, how they lead, manage, and connect with others. From the sectors of aerospace, defense, tech, IT, and more, this is Local Leaders. Your host has been making meaningful connections with industry leaders for over 15 years. Here's Philip Nathrum. Welcome back to the DC Local Leaders Podcast. I'm your host, Philip Nathrum, and thank you so much for spending some time with us today. If it's your first time checking us out, please remember to subscribe wherever you're listening. We're also on Instagram, and come find me on LinkedIn. I'd love to connect with you. I want to connect with each and every person that listens to this show, and we have been growing in numbers, and it's just been amazing to get to know so many of you and have you recommend so many people that you know in your own community that are outstanding examples of leadership. We've got some fighter pilots from Colorado joining the show, former Navy secretary, former Army generals, tons of technology C-suite entrepreneurs, executive leaders, people that we can learn from and just soak up all of that information that they've learned from their own life experience. So some pretty fun things happening. And I really appreciate all the feedback. So please, if it's your first time checking us out, make sure you subscribe. We've got our newsletter ready to cycle around. And we've got some amazing changes with the tech platform that we're building, a membership group that we've got going for executive leaders, people who just want to get better together. And we're going to do as much as we possibly can to help transitioning military folks, find jobs, people that want to change careers and they want mentorship on how to do that, we're going to be the ones to help you. So a lot of exciting things and I want everyone on board. So please remember to check us out. Today's episode is with Anna Frazetto. She is an outstanding example of leadership. She opens up today. You know, she doesn't talk about a lot of her technical experience. She's one of the few that were a developer and now finds herself in a C-suite position, which is an outstanding journey by itself. But we talk about her experience with therapy and what that taught her about herself and how she relates to other people better because of it. We talk about the lessons she learned from her father, who was a hardworking person that immigrated to this country. She grew up first generation in New York City and what that experience experience was like and how that shapes her mindset to allow her to better serve others today. So an outstanding conversation coming up. Don't miss out on this. And if you do find it valuable, please remember to give us a rating. Spotify now allows you to rate the podcast that you listen to. So we'd really appreciate some feedback there. And let's get into the episode. Well, Anna Frazetto. Thank you so much for being here. Tential CDTO. We're here in your office here in Annapolis, Maryland. Thanks so much for making the time. Awesome. Thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited about this today. Yeah, me too. We uh, we took some coordination, but we're making it happen. So I really appreciate you just being committed to doing this with me. And I, I hope, uh, yeah, and I'm excited to uh, get to know you. So CDTO, what does that stand for? So it stands for Chief Digital Technology Officer. Okay. So chief digital technology. And is there a CTO also? No, there is not. Okay. There's not. Yeah. Yeah. So you're kind of doing both roles or? Yeah. It's all rolled up in one. Actually, it's interesting because the way the, the role came about is really more in working with our clients and being viewed as a um, trusted advisor, a strategic partner to our clients. So representing pretty much whatever is going on in your IT world that you can partner with us and that I can help you from that perspective to kind of lead you down that path. Yeah. So, you know, a lot of people that I've interviewed that are are CTOs, uh, they always say that that T actually stands for more. It stands for translator, not necessarily technology. Do you kind of feel the same way? I do. Absolutely. And actually, I love that. I think I'm going to copy that and use that going forward, because often what happens when you're dealing with with clients or any organization that is kind of looking at their technology roadmap, it's pretty confusing. It's pretty complicated. And the world is changing so quickly that sometimes it might take a lot to get your organization to kind of move at that level. So therefore, that role, the CDTO or the CTO uh, clearly is going to have to play a significant role in kind of bridging the gap between what's happening technologically and then what's really applicable to your organization. 
Did you, are you a technologist uh, by trade or is that something that you studied or are you a little bit different? Yes. So I, I studied, I was double major computer science and mathematics, a total tech nerd, yeah. really proud of it. And I still wear those stripes as kind of like a badge of honor, but uh, yeah, love the technology background. Where'd you go to school? Have. I went to NYU. Yeah. So you, and you're from New Jersey. We didn't mention that before, but you made the time to, to come all the way down here from New Jersey uh, while you were here in the office. And I'm really glad that we're doing that. Yeah, yeah, perfect. I try to come to the office, you know, ever since COVID, everything has been pretty much remote, but I try to make it to the office at least every couple of months because it's always nice to, we have an expression that we joke around about, you know, we want to come and touch the rock. Like we're all on the same yeah. page and, you know, come and meet and greet with each other once again and and then go off and do what we need to do. Yeah. And you, you grew up in New York? Yes, I did. Manhattan, Lower East Side. Yeah. <laughs> what was it like growing up in New York? It was fantastic. I mean, I have to tell you, a lot of people would always say to me, oh, my goodness, you didn't grow up. You you grew up in a concrete, you know, village. You didn't uh, uh, you didn't have parks. You didn't have grass. And, you know, didn't you miss it? Or but honestly, when you're in it, like you really don't know what you are missing. And I wouldn't trade it for the world really? now that I'm, you know, obviously an adult. I wouldn't want to have any other upbringing than the upbringing that I had. Because I think what Manhattan did for me was it offered me a, um, a diverse environment for me to grow up in and for me to be part of. So, you know, for example, my parents migrated here in 1958. And uh, they actually came with an an older sister. I would have had an older sister, but she passed away uh, when she was um, here just after six months that they were here. And my parents were determined to make it in New York City. And then I have to say, I thought, you know, my mom really wanted to go back to uh, to Italy because she did not want to deal with, you know, obviously the loss of a child and wanted to go back. But she, you know, my dad was incredible. Like he was so persistent and he had that, I call it the intestinal fortitude to literally like he was going to make it here in the U.S. So uh, growing up in Manhattan, it means a lot to me just because when I take a look at the upbringing that my, you know, my parents actually their initial years here in America. Yeah. What year was that? When did they come? They came in 1958. Okay. Yeah. And what they do? So my father, so th- if you think about it, 1958 was kind of at the end of like the industrial, um, you know, revolution, so to speak, where yeah. there was a call for different trades around the world. So my dad was a tailor. And there was a need for, you know, tailors to come to America. So him and my mom on an 11 and a half day boat ride uh, from Italy to uh, New York, they came here and it was all for the opportunity to become a tailor here in Manhattan. And um, that's what brought them here. And then honestly, it was their own determination and passion to, you know, survive and live uh, is what kept them here. So did he have a tailor shop? Did he open? No, he worked. He worked in a uh, for a tailor company. Actually, it's kind of interesting because when you take a look at some of the early work of uh, Salvatore Ferragamo and uh, Ralph Lauren and um, Zenia, my dad was one of the tailors that worked in all yeah. of those uh, organizations. That's awesome. So when you were growing up, was that kind of was it was it was fashion a big deal or did people was that around the house and everyone was talking about oh, okay. designers? So, so so actually, it's really funny because we grew up pretty poor. I mean, my dad worked you know three jobs to provide for for my sister and I, and uh, but the one thing is we were the best dressed kids on the planet. I mean, I went for my first interview and I had a Ralph Lauren suit that obviously my father, you know, cut, you know, cut for me or whatever. I didn't have the Ralph Lauren label, but I mean, the style and everything. So it was like, I was always like rocking every interview because my dad dressed us and, and made sure that we looked, you know, top notch. But meanwhile, we, we were really, really poor. Yeah. Was, but like being well-dressed and well-tailored, has that, is that something that, that stuck with you over time? Like, Oh yes. Yeah, absolutely. My, you know, my dad, you, we can never, for example, uh, you know, when you get a suit or a suit jacket, it's always sewn. Right. So, and a lot of people, what they'll do is they open up the pocket and, you know, get rid of the, the stitching. So it's like, so he would, you're not, he would not allow you to do that with any of the jackets. Like he would just say, keep it, 
Keep it sewn because what will happen is you'll start putting stuff in the pockets and then it will make the jacket not look as tailored and perfectly shaped. So it's pretty fascinating. Wow. Yeah. yeah. You know, come to think about it, some of my suit jackets where I've gotten used to just putting my, my keys in the pocket. Those are the ones they're, you know, it's my size, but it looks a little bit more round there just because it's used to holding my keys. Right. Right. Yeah. It changes the shape of the of the jacket. Yeah. <laughs> Did you play sports growing up? Uh, so not really um, on a team, but I did play softball for my uh, sorority, uh, sorority house. So I wouldn't consider myself to be super athletic, but I am very competitive. Yeah. So I think the combination of being very competitive helped me. And I was able to always do well. So there's a trophy that sits in my office of, of uh, winning some intramural that we had done uh, at the sorority house. And so, of course, anybody in my family that knows me now, they're like, you actually won that one. I'm like, yes, I did. Yeah. I was a catcher for my for my sorority. So it was a lot of fun. What sorority was it? It was Gamma Delta. Yeah. What school? NYU. Okay. Yeah, that's right. Yeah. And so you went to grad school also? No, I did not. No? I thought I was going to go to grad school, but no, I started working and then pretty much stuck that that what, route. What was your first job? So my first job, I worked with uh, IBM and I was a systems engineer for IBM and I loved it. The only thing is that I, I was um, an intern for IBM between my junior and senior year. And then that was kind of like the drill. What would happen is you would become an intern and then most likely they would offer you a job by the time you graduate the senior year. But you know, IBM also stood for I've been moved, right? So what would happen is I lived in, you know, Manhattan. And so I had a job opportunity either in Kingston or Endicott. After I visited the two locations and saw the winters that they had, I decided, no, I'm good. I'll, I think I'll find someplace else to, you know, to go work. And that's when I started to work for uh, SyncSort, which was a, you know, sorting technology sorting company. Yeah. What did you learn at IBM that you think you wouldn't have otherwise learned? I think, you know, what was interesting in starting in an organization that's that large, I really learned um, the fact of being that only you can control your destiny. Mm. Uh, so I think when you work with a smaller company, you kind of feel like, oh, well, you know, my manager knows me and my manager is only maybe like one or two levels removed from the CEO. So I'm being noticed when you're at IBM and there are hundreds of thousands of employees, you literally have to kind of take ownership of your career and figure out what path you want to go down and make it known. So I learned very early on, make it known whatever your desire is as far as like kind of the next thing that you want to try. How do you do that? I Communicating with your manager. That's a great way to start is you communicate with your manager. Uh, be aware of whatever publications and whatever uh, communication there is within the organization. Usually large organizations do a great job at communicating uh, as far as if there's job openings or there's different groups or functions or, you know, you can volunteer to do different things that might expose you maybe to a skill that you're looking to seek after. So that's what I would do is talk to to talk to your manager, make sure that they're aware, and then also uh, make sure that you're in the know as far as whatever communication is happening in the organization. Yeah. Were you like that in your sorority, like kind of reaching out to other people? Yes, constantly. You know, I was always looking to, uh, you know, what else can we do? What, how, how else can we help? What other sororities can we partner up with oh. to uh, maybe if we wanted to get the school to move on a particular, you know, transaction? Gamma Delta is a national uh, sorority. So tapping into some of the other geographies, we've done that too. To get your power in numbers, right? If yeah. people unite, it's amazing what you can get done. Was there something that you were trying to get done in school that you were partnering up with other sororities to, to do? So, yeah. So um, one of the things was making sure having a more dedicated space for the sorority to be able to run uh, either different meetings or different fundraisers that we were part of. Like we often uh, would associate with like the American Heart Association and we would want to have like um, aerobic thons or things like that. But actually, access to space. So we would look at other Gamma Deltas that maybe they had a larger campus footprint 
and be able to say, okay, how did you get that larger campus footprint? Can we learn from that? And can we then adopt it in mm. at NYU? Yes. Yeah, so you were learning business development and skills to get things done with other teams, other companies from a pretty young age. Yeah. I mean, now that you put it that way, I guess I was. I mean, but it's always been my um, curiosity. I think, you know, if one person once asked me in one of these kind of, you know, sessions where I was being interviewed, if I was to pick, you know, three words, how would I describe myself? And curiosity was the number one word that I picked because my whole life, I've always been curious and try to figure out, like, how can we do it better? Yeah. You know, they, there's got to be a better way to, you know, to approach it. Well, yeah, because you're not it doesn't sound like you're the traditional. Well, I don't know what traditional technologist really even means, you know, but you just seem pretty outgoing. Um, and I think that it sounds like from a very young age, you were doing those sort of things. And it's no wonder that you wound up in a role where you translate to a business unit and you translate between the technology and the business units. Right. So it's funny you say that, fellow, because uh, I'll tell you, I started off in my career, I was a developer, so I was a programmer and did that for, you know, many years. I, I kind of moved up the rank. I was a development manager. And then not until I started working for a company called MHT Services at the time, and it was the CEO who said, you have such strong people skills. Like, why are you developing? <laughs> you know, like yeah. we, we need to put you in front of clients. And, uh, so he kind of like almost invented a role for me where I would, um, help the salespeople on being able to explain to clients what our platform really did. And I, I would be able to translate, right? Translate yeah. and put into layman's terminology as far as we, we worked on this conversion tool, uh, that we had and we offered it as a service. But I would just basically show up and be able to kind of, you know, help a client understand, you know, what the product did. So that kind of stuck for, you know, for a while. And then when I started working at of Brandon Systems, uh, which was a small consulting company, then got acquired and became, you know, Spherion. I, another, you know, well, manager, the CEO at the time, uh, his name was Bob. He did a great job at basically saying, okay, you're, he was great at looking at individuals and assessing their skill sets. And he said, you, yes, strong technical background, but you need to be involved on the sales side of the organization because there's tremendous power that you can bring in working with the salespeople and selling yourself. Now, of course, in my mind, I was thinking like, oh, no, I'm. I'm a technologist. I'm not selling. And my friends were accusing me of joining the dark side if I was going to become a salesperson. Right. But I wound up doing it. And I have to tell you, it it gave such credibility to uh, the story. Right. Because I can show up to a client side and understand their technological pain. Right. And be able to propose the right, you know, solution for them as far as what they should or couldn't do or what they should evaluate. And so it really evolved nicely. And then because of that background, it kind of brought in my perspective where I can manage operations and delivery, too, because I came from that. So I, I'm grateful for the mentors in my life. Right. I mean, yeah. that was the key. And I, and that would be my advice to anyone would always be make sure you get mentors in life that help you. They see you differently than you see yourself. Yeah. And and has that always kind of been the, the case for you? What, what was your first mentor? How old were you when you got your first mentor? Okay. What, so my first mentor, I would have to say, was my father. Yeah. And, you know, not not to get, you know, emotional, but my my dad was ahead of his times. He. um he had this way of conveying such confidence. And, uh, and I think again, it's part of, and I know Philip, we've had this conversation being first generation of immigrant parents. It really does wire you differently. I think than anyone who doesn't come from that. And I don't mean that, you know, one in a bad way or anything for those that are not, you know, first generation of immigrants. But I think what happens is it, it, it really teaches you almost survival skills, right. And mm. how to dig deep and fight for what you believe in. So my dad was full of that. And I remember plenty of times where I would convince myself to talk myself out of a promotion, right? There's a job potential, and 
I'm literally sitting in my room and kind of going through all the pros and cons. And I've convinced myself that I'm not qualified for that job. Yeah. Right. W- without even talking to my manager yet. Right. And my father would come in and he would say, Anna, talk to your manager. And I'm like, oh, but no. He's like, what's the worst that can happen? Is he's going to say no. Right. So for him to say no, um, you'll learn from it. And then you can apply those to, you know, future, you know, future skills. So don't, you know, like, like you're, you're, you're talking yourself out of it as opposed to convincing yourself that you can go for it. And I have to tell you, that was such a great lesson that I learned because then it gave me the, the inner strength to go after and pursue the things that I wanted to pursue. So my dad definitely number one mentor in my life. And then I've been truly blessed where I would always, wherever I worked, I would seek out that that one manager, either the manager I reported into or other managers that I noticed. And I would ask them, is like, are you, are you okay with, you know, kind of being my mentor? And can I come and talk to you maybe every, you know, couple of weeks or once a week? And, and some would, would be fantastic. And I would talk to them every week on, you know, kind of how I was progressing and what challenges I was encountering. Others were a little bit more like, what do you mean mentor you know, yeah. kind of thing? But then you find someone else that'll help you. Yeah, but you're asking for the help. And it's so funny. You know, you mentioned something that I, I talk to a lot of people about that. It's so crazy how we can have the whole conversation with ourselves. Right. <laughs> you you went through the entire process of hoping to get promoted, asking it, having the conversation with your manager, deciding that you weren't qualified, not getting it all within your own head from your room without even leaving the house to the point where you believed everything that you thought up. Right. But all it takes is that external voice of like, Hey, get out of your head, go, go have the conversation. And what's the word? They're not going to take you out back and kill you. They're just going to at worst say no. And they won't even prop more than likely. Most companies won't just say no. They'll give you reasons why. And those are action plans that you can take action towards and then reevaluate. Exactly. I mean, it's amazing. And now, you know, now years later, uh, as I coach and mentor other individuals that report into me, I always say your worst enemy is yourself. Yeah. You, you create your own monsters and basically don't create your own monsters. I mean, you have the, um, the inner strength to be able to kind of, you know, believe that you can do it. You know, just recently uh, I was helping a friend of mine who was um, rejected for a particular, you know, job position, uh, but she felt, you know, passionate that she could really do the job. And I told her, I said, you know, did you say that? Did you express that passion And so, you know, she admitted to me, she goes, well, no, not, no, not really. I said, but you see how you're talking to me right now? You need to go back to that recruiter and you need to be able to say, I know I can do this job. Be confident. Don't, don't say, I think I can, or, you know, and that's the big difference. Like be sure of yourself. What do you think that that sort of lack of confidence or that sort of, I think I can voice. Where does that come from within us? Because she seemed to be very passionate and very able to express her passion to you because she already knew you probably. But where do you think, you know, in the other room with the recruiter, with the other person, that lack of ability to have that same passion comes from? Right. I I do think I do think that unfortunately what happens is that um, you have this, you know, kind of like uh, evil inner voice that, you know, kind of takes you down a couple of notches. Uh, and maybe sometimes it's a protective mechanism where it's saying, don't get too excited about this job because most likely you're not going to get yeah. it, you know, kind of thing. And maybe it's like that negative inner voice that's telling you that you can't achieve. But I think what you have to do is you need to literally put that voice in a box and and get rid of that voice and say, no, I really do believe, you know, in any job that you approach, let's say there's 20 things that you need to learn for that job. And you might only know 15 of them. 
but you're smart enough to figure out the other five. And I think what winds up happening is that sometimes you convince yourself that those other five things, that they are more important than the 15 that you already know how to do. Instead, you should be focused and saying, no, I got the 15. And because I got the 15, I'm going to be able to do the other five. Yeah. No problem. It's that feeling of not enough. We all suffer from that. I think, yes. you know, it's just that, or, and if, if it's not, not enough, it's the fear of, it's almost a fear of success just as much as it's a fear of failure. Because what if I do get the job and something happens that I'm not enough to handle on the other end, right? What if I'm not, you know, what if it's a mistake? What if I get it by accident? I, I felt like that plenty of times. And, you know, I, I think you're right. It's, we have to be able to make space for that voice, but realize that's not, you know, that's not God talking up there. <laughs> you know, that's, that's me. That's all my fears and, and the fear of the unknown expressing itself and convincing me that I'm not good enough to do the thing that I've already got 15 reasons, as you said, that shows that I am like, right. they weren't all a mistake, even if one was. 14 other ones. I mean, maybe it's a skill set that we have. And I think I do a lot with the reticular activating system and trying to understand that, that like, you know, if you bought a blue car, you'll see blue cars everywhere. It's not because more people bought blue cars. It's just because you're now more aware of it. So if I start my day in, in a frame of mind that I am successful and I am worthy and I am valuable and I am capable and I take every action to achieve my goals throughout the day. I'll see more and more examples of opportunities for me to take actions towards those kind of thoughts. Or if it's like, you know, I'm not really all that great at this. I don't know why I'm doing it. It's throughout the day. I'll find more reasons to reinforce that. Exactly. You know, one thing that that I do every time I've led a sales organization, especially salespeople, I mean, it is such an emotional roller coaster when you're in sales and very different than, you know, when I've managed operations and delivery. Operations and delivery is a little bit more, um, you know, logical, you know, uh, you can pretty much stick to facts and figures and and you can appeal to to the team that way. On the sales side, there's a lot that's emotionally charged as far as what makes you a great salesperson. And I would do this thing where I would, you know, print off these and laminate uh, and put on everybody's cubicle. If you believe it, you can achieve it. And it's really simple. And every day I would walk by, this is, you know, when we were able to be in an office and I would basically say, do you believe it? Do you believe it? Yes, I can achieve it because I want that positive reinforcement. The fact that if you approach the day and you approach the day with saying, oh, I don't know, I have such big targets. I don't know if I can make it. Well, guess what? You're not going to do well on any of the calls you have with your clients. You're not going to do well in getting responses from your LinkedIn you know, messages that you sent out because you're already projecting a little bit of fear or a little bit of anxiety as opposed to. I got this yeah. kind of, you know, charge. Same thing with delivery. You know, if you're managing a large project and you have tight deadlines and you have tight deliverables, if you approach it with like, oh, I don't know if we're going to make it. I don't know if we're going to do it. Then guess what? You're not like you need to approach it from the position of we got this. We're on track. We're managing to the sprint cycle. We're managing to these objectives. We're all over it. We can achieve it. Yeah. Believe you can and you will. Exactly. You know, it's funny. I talk about I am statements a lot. I'd oh. love to how are you with I am statements? Oh, I love I am statements yeah. because I think there's nothing wrong with being able to wake up in the morning and say, you know, kind of go through your own series of like, I am a, you know, I am a great salesperson or I am going to skydive today. If that's so a challenge yeah. that you've given yourself or I am going to conquer Mount Everest in Animal Kingdom Disney because that's a ride I want to be able to conquer. You know, whatever it is, as little or as big as it is, I think if you have those positive kind of mantra that that you can yeah. go through, it, it will come to fruition. Where'd you pick that up? I have to say it's been um, through work, you know, obviously different managers that I've worked with that have given me this, you know, kind of positive um, reinforcement. 
uh, through therapy. Yeah. You know, obviously, uh, therapy is always like when you, uh, evaluate, um, you know, I, I, I was, um, uh, I had a divorce yeah. and didn't go well. It wasn't a pleasant divorce. And that was the first time that I went to therapy. And I have to say, it was one of these things like, oh my God, ther- you know, I was one of those people like, yeah. therapy. oh, oh my God, who needs this? It's like, seriously. Yeah. Like, oh, no, I'm not doing this. And then I did it and I felt like I became the infomercial for it because I said, this is amazing. Like everybody should go. I think we should start therapy when you're in grade school, because I think it's so helpful. It's, it's amazing how I I was similar. Right. And I didn't even, we don't know what we don't know. I don't, I'd never been to therapy. So I had no reason. I had no qualifications to say whether it was good or bad, but I was convinced that like, Oh, I don't need that. I'm fine. But we don't know what we don't know. Like it's, I don't, I didn't know how unfine I was until, you know, I, st- I started working with someone else and, you know, I, we all go for our, our separate reasons. And we find that, you know, the, the amount of work that I was able to do and, and ripping off a lot of those old ideas and those old beliefs, going to therapy wasn't necessarily so much of an education of new things to do as it was unlearning a bunch of old stuff that I had already had. Exactly. And then I think also what happens, too, is that you have no idea how your upbringing. So we, we've talked about being first generation, right, uh, immigrant. So I grew up where I had um, to do all of my uh, father's, you know, uh, invoice writing, uh, financial statements, banking. Um, I had to take care of the household. I was running the household at the age of 10. Because my parents didn't speak English and I was the one that learned how to speak English before, you know, they did. So you wind up growing like you really don't have a childhood when you do that and you wind up growing up really fast. And then you develop almost a little bit of a hard, you know, exterior because you feel like you're protecting the household and you're, you know, you're kind of, you know, anybody can come to you and you'll be there for them and you'll, you know, help them through whatever crisis. But after years and years of doing that, you don't realize until there's a pinnacle event in your life that that actually maybe has created some patterns that you shouldn't be hanging on to. And that's exactly to your mm-hmm. point. Like you unlearn certain things. And that's exactly what happened after, you know, like my, you know, my divorce. It was, oh my goodness. I'm like, oh no, I don't want to, I don't want to be that person. Yeah. I want to be this person. And it was somebody who was objective and can shine the light on different things. Then maybe your family can't be objective because they're your family, right? So yeah. you want somebody who doesn't know you to basically say, no, you know what? You have a tendency to be a little too hard on yourself. So go, you know, go approach it this way kind of thing. Yeah. And it's not all, you know, look, I, I've got the person I spoke to. She was very real with me, right? She was kind and loving, um, but she was very real with me. It was a lot of she described to me my own patterns that I was unable to see that every like, you know, if you want what they have, do what they do. And if you don't want what you've got, look at what you're doing. Oh, I love that. You know, it's like, yeah, I mean, I made that up on my own, but, um, <laughs> but you know what I mean? It's, it, it's like, you know, these things aren't happening to me. Not everybody is thinking about me as much as I'm thinking about me. Most of the things that are going on in my life are a result of my own behavior. So, um, you know, and, and just the amount of work that goes on in that, in those rooms is so great. And it, it changed the way that I, it changed the conversation I was having with myself and therefore it changed the conversation I was having with others. Right. You know, um, and I was able to look at my own behavior and have a lot more compassion for other people's behavior, too, because I understand they're suffering with some stuff. I I didn't even know I'd never heard the phrase abandonment issues or I, I didn't even know what that stuff meant. I knew that people had them. I never would have told you that I had them because I'm like, what are you talking about? Nobody abandoned me anywhere. Like I'm always where everybody else is. Right. Like, like I just didn't even understand what it meant. Right. Um, but when you were talking, describing like that sort of growing up too fast, sort of missing out on the opportunity to just be an irresponsible kid, you know, it's great in a sense that when we're, you know, teenagers are like, Oh, they're so responsible. We're looking for that praise from other people and they're giving it to us. And that's what they're saying. So we're doing more of it, not realizing that we're missing out on other opportunities that we'll never be able to get back. And it, it sort of cal- calcifies this idea that's in our head. Right. And like all things, it, there's a time and a place for it. it. It's what I found is that 
therapy and working with coaches, you mentioned coaches and even mentors, right? That's, I think that's the power of having mentors and more than one, because no one person fills all your gaps. Um, you know, being able to work with someone to, to kind of point out where you're taking certain actions that are equaling certain things. It's almost like you're using the wrong tool for the wrong thing, right? It's great that you have a hammer and you're doing really well at it, but what you need is a screwdriver right now. Exactly. Exactly. And it's true. So that's why it's like I'm a big, a big proponent of of uh, mentors in your career. I often look at, you know, when I take a look at my, you know, my journey and and I say, you know, did high school really prepare me for college? Did college really prepare me for work? Um, did I have a support structure around me of people that I could go to being the the oldest in my, you know, so basically it was my sister and I, and then I had two cousins and we grew up like four sisters, but my two cousins were kind of sandwiched between myself and my sister. And, but we didn't, I was able to learn things to help my cousins and my sister, but I did not have, you know, I didn't have anybody to go to. So that's what I look at. I look at, you know, how do we create environments that people have, you know, places to go? When I look at, you know, the numbers of like women in tech, why are they so low? Uh, technology is a difficult industry to be a part of. And um, it's not very embracing, but, you know, what can we do, you know, to kind of create that environment that makes it embracing not only for for women in tech, but for diversity in general, as far as, you know, how do we create, you know, that kind of environment? And it comes with coaches and mentors and making sure you're you're talking to people that kind of help you along the way. Yeah. And, you know, the benefit of it because you've had it. And you also know, I think that teaches us how to help other people too. And I found that even though I may be helping someone else, they're helping me way more than I'm helping them. Because they're teaching me at the same time because they're asking me questions that I didn't even know. We don't know what we don't know. Right. So and and I think the best way and sometimes I don't even I, I couldn't until you ask me a question of how I got to where I am to have me articulate it. I never would have thought about those things that made that much of a difference to me. Um, and being able to, to recognize that and reflect on that, I think is helpful because what got me here won't get me there. Oh, and I love that. I love that. That's such a powerful statement. And I think it's so realistic for everybody to think that. I think when you own a company, when you, um, how you manage your household, um, you, your own personal career, I think that's so applicable as far as saying, you know, what got you here isn't going to be what's going to get you there. Yeah. I mean, in this company, Tensile, it works with probably a board of directors or multiple managers of some sort. Same thing with our own personal journeys, our own personal lives, whether it's our career or our private life. It takes, you know, we need our own personal board of directors. We need help. Exactly. Oh, but, and I, and you know what? That's a great way of putting it because I do think the mentors and the coaches and maybe therapists are your personal board of directors that kind of help you manage your career and your life. Yeah. When, so you have kids too? I have three stepsons. Yeah. So you got remarried? I did. I got remarried, yeah. which was the greatest thing I ever did. Uh, yeah. And three stepsons and I have six grandkids. So it's awesome. <laughs> yeah. When did you get married the first time? So I got married. Uh, I was 24 years old. So it was literally just a couple of years. Yeah. And, and that my advice to everyone is do not get married at 24 years old <laughs> because you have no idea what you want out of life at 24 yeah. years old. Uh, definitely look at, um, waiting. If you get married in your thirties, you know, is my, my suggestion. But yes, 24. So it was just not, you know, we, we grew apart. It was so easy to grow apart because we were both, uh, graduated from NYU at the same time and and uh clearly we evolve differently and grow and and that was the end of that yeah do you think that's what it is just you you become a different person well every year of our life right the who we were last year isn't who we are now but you know over time when you're that young you just you're kind of still almost figuring out I think I was kind of still figuring out who I was oh definitely uh, I think um you still don't know who you want to be, right? And what you want to do for the rest of your life, let alone 
then figure out how you're going to do it with someone else, right? Mm-hmm. So that's why when I got married, you know, the second time I got married, um, I've married now the second time I've been married for 16 years. And, but we were both, you know, older, you know, wiser, uh, at different levels in our career, already well established as far as our careers, uh, and the trajectory for our careers. So it was kind of interesting to, to see how, you also approach the relationship differently because you have a level of maturity where you learn to hear each other out when you don't agree on certain things. Um, it's the true meaning of real, you know, compromise, right? And being able to understand. So that's why it's like it gives you a level of maturity that you you can't possibly have when you're 24. Yeah. How old were you when you were going through the divorce? So I was about 29 years old. And you were working at that time? Yes, I was. How, what was that like? I mean, that's got to be a lot of pressure and a lot of emotional space. I buried space. myself in work. Yeah. Where I were you at the time? Uh, I was at uh, Spirion at the time. Yeah. Um, I excelled. I was doing great at work because I so uh, got tunnel vision and just buried myself in work. Uh, but then, you know, uh, personally yeah. and emotionally, I was, you know, a wreck. Yeah. Uh, but, you know, again, you know, mu- tunnel vision, muster through it. You're going to get through it. Part of being that, you know, first generation immigrant. Oh, like, no, nobody can know how much yeah. pain you're in. Right. So just keep doing what you got to do and survive yeah. and keep it all together for everybody. And that's when, you know, I decided to get, you know, get uh, some help. My sister yeah. was a pinnacle uh, point in my life where she's like, listen, yeah. <laughs> you're not listening to me, but listen, you need to go speak to someone. And I did. And that was the best advice that she could possibly give me. And I loved it. Yeah. Was there that feeling of like, as long as I look good on the outside, then no one knows how how bad I'm doing on the inside. And that's what's important. You know, I don't even think I reflected long enough to even think that. Um, Not at all. I I think I literally just, you know, kind of, you know, had the visors up and say, no, I'm focused tunnel vision. No time to feel uh the emotion of you know it's it's your mourning right it's a dead marriage right so you're you should go through a mourning process and i didn't i didn't do that and you know your career or the stuff you were doing at work especially at that time you were probably still doing more technical stuff those were things that you can control right exactly which i loved and it was also i i was involved on the you know kind of doing technical sales support and getting involved more on the sales side so i loved clients i loved you know interacting with people and that almost i felt like that that gave me um you know, the wind beneath my wings, yeah. so to speak, it like it let me flourish and it, it, it fulfilled me in that way, uh, as opposed to, um, you know, thinking about, you know, the marriage that didn't work. Yeah. And for the longest time, like you hit on something earlier where you talked about, you know, fear of failure or, you know, kind of how do you approach it? I have to say, uh, that was the, the biggest lesson that I learned from my, um, from my divorce was the fact of, you know, I, I, I couldn't fail. Like that was failure, right? Mm. That you failed at your marriage, regardless of who you want to blame. Right. I mean, blame is 50, 50 at the end of the day. And, um, it was that whole thing that kind of made me realize, okay, no, you can fail and it's okay. And just kind of learn from the experience. Yeah. You know, that brings us to something that I ask every, every guest and I call it the jumping off point. And, but it's really what I mean by that is a moment where you can no longer keep doing what you're doing, but you're uncertain of what to do next. And it could be in your personal life, your professional life, wherever it is. Um, or even, you know, a moment looking back that at the time it was a horrible experience or you thought at the time it was a horrible experience. But only now in reflection, you're incredibly grateful for that experience because you wouldn't be who you are or have the relationships that you have or the knowledge that you've gained from it. You know, what, what is that for you? Yeah, you know, it, it's interesting because I think there's so many actually that as you as you said that my head was getting, you know, bombarded with different ideas. You know, the fact of, you know, going to NYU uh, because my father was super strict and did not want me to, you know, go away to college. Right. He wanted to make sure, you know, since I lived in the city, I could commute, you know, to NYU. So it was easy. Obviously, 
that, you know, made me who I am, even though there were points in my life where I thought like, oh, I wish I went away. But now in retrospect, I'm glad I didn't go away because I truly, I think it shaped me into who I am being able to have this such a solid foundation at NYU. Um, you know, the failure of the first marriage, I think, shapes you in a way, even though that was a negative experience. But what it does is it actually um, taught me how to be a great wife for my second marriage. Right. So it was one of those things that I'm like, yeah. you know, it kind of, you know, worked out because it really helped me. Uh, to better understand myself and better understand what relationships are like. Because when you're that young, you really can't appreciate that. So I think those kind of avenues, when I took the plunge of, you know, getting 100% into sales, and that was because of my, you know, mentor at the time, um, my mentor at the time was Bob Miano, who actually now is my husband that I'm referring to. So it's really kind of interesting. There's probably some Freudian message there somewhere. <laughs> but, um, you know, him pushing me in the direction of doing sales. And I was literally horrified at the process and saying, I know nothing about sales. Like, how am I going to do this? But him having the faith and the faith was strong enough to literally for both of us in the sense of pushing me in that direction. But now I'm so grateful. I think if I would have stayed the tech route, I wouldn't be as fulfilled in my career as I am today because I I literally can run the yeah. full gamut from sales to operations to delivery, which I've done in the past. And I, I, I love that, that I have that flexibility. So there's a few different points in my life that I could say are the, you know, jump off points, so to speak. Yeah. Most people that I talk to have multiple, right? There's probably one that they can recall a little bit more um, of a fonder memory, or I don't know if that's the right word, but it sticks out a little bit more than the others. But I think when we talk about building resiliency and building grit, right, that is a repetitive action. I don't think any one thing happens to us and then we're resilient from there on. It's probably, it's, it's kind of, it's like those gnawing pains that just keep coming up, but we keep going anyway. Right. That sort of builds that grit. Or if you want to think of it like working out, I think it's like the, the lower rep, the more reps, lower weight. Right. You know, you start to build some strength, almost like a wire cable. Like it may not be that big, but it's like, you know, capuchin monkey strong. Right. Right. You know, <laughs> um, and I think that's uh, so that's why I asked that question to to everyone that I talked to. And I'm, I, I just it fascinates me how people get to where they are and, and why they keep doing the things that they do. Um you know, what's, what's the biggest thing that terrifies you now? What's your biggest fear? Like for right now? My, my biggest fear is that I want to be able to leave enough, um, like guidance and, uh, nuggets of lessons learned to my nieces and my nephew and my grandkids. Right. So, so my biggest fear is not being able to capture all of that to pass on to them because, you know, there's tremendous amount of power and learning from people around you. And I feel the one thing that you kind of, you know, miss out in life is when you haven't had that opportunity, when you feel like something's been taken away, like my dad died really young and I wish I had him in my life, you know, a little bit longer. So I think about those things and I actually think like, oh my goodness, I want to make sure that I can, you know, um, either write down or, you know, leave little video clips, whatever the case is of like little pearls of wisdom that I could pass on to them so that they don't have to experience the same, you know, pain and challenges that maybe you experience as you're trying to enhance your career. Um, not so much directly from me, but also like the power of, Use mentors, use, you know, use coaches, use, you know, use your manager as as a way to kind of lead you uh, through that. So that I would say that's probably one of my you know biggest fears is making sure that I can pass pass things on. How old were you when your dad died? So I was 40. Yeah. 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 Do you think that your, your thought of like, especially you mentioned your nieces and, and your grandkids, like the people that you want to leave behind these messages for, do you think losing your dad at a relatively young age, uh, had to do with that? Do you feel like yes. 
There was absolutely because you know what he he was so impactful in my career. And if you think about it, like when you you know when you hit like uh, I was just under forty, um, like you're just starting to get into a groove as far as what your career is going to be. So doing. it'd be nice. It'd be nice to still have him here as the sounding board because he was always. I used to call him like he was like the voice of calm. Yeah. Like no matter what the situation, no matter what the the challenge, I could talk. Meanwhile, I mean, we're talking about a man who had, you know, grade school education, but self-taught. OK, right. so he was an avid, you know, reader, um, constantly learning. I mean, he would talk to me about, you know, uh, the latest, you know, like Jack Welsh and this and that. Amazing, because it was always like self-taught. So I think that's why I loved, you know, kind of I can go to him with anything and he would be able to kind of cipher through it and and kind of help me say, did you never give me the answer? Right. Mm-hmm. Never give the answer. But I always would say, huh. Did you think of, you know, possibly looking at that, you know, whatever that might be? And and he would just make you think like he would shift my mind, like think about it differently, approach it differently. And I he used to be like my focus, my focus yeah. lens. Right. Like he would always get me back in focus and on the right track. Yeah. Well, it worked out really well for you. Yeah, it did. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, um, you know, hopefully we can have you back on a couple more times and we can help you in that, uh, that opportunity to leave behind those nuggets, not just for your nieces and, and your grandkids, but for other people that, uh, that want to follow in your footsteps or just learn from your experience. I mean, I think looking back, like, what do you think so far to get you where you are now? What's been the number one lesson that you learned either from doing something wrong or doing something right? I have to say determination, right? And passion, right? Whatever you do in life, be passionate about it. Don't go at it half fast because if you're not passionate about it, then that should not be the avenue you should be pursuing. So, okay. And determination and determination. Like you, you got to be determined to see it to the end. I think that sometimes it's so easy to give up because we have a life that things can be, you know, we can have access to things so easy, maybe. So then it's easy to just kind of chalk it up, say, oh, okay, it didn't work out. I'll move on to something else. But I think if you have tremendous passion for, a particular goal, a particular career, a particular milestone that you want to achieve, have the determination that goes with it. Yeah. It's, it's easy to start. It's not easy to finish. That's true. (laughs) Yeah. Well, like I said, hopefully we can have you back on a couple more times. Uh, I'd love to help you, you know, keep spreading the word. And I really appreciate you being here with us today. Thank you so much, Philip. This has been absolutely fantastic. Uh, It was almost a therapy session, so it was great. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, well, so anyone listening that wants to get in touch with you to kind of just learn from your mentorship, learn from your experience, grab a cup of coffee or or whatever it is, what's the best way to get in touch? So LinkedIn, I think, is the best way to get a hold of me. I respond to all my LinkedIn uh, messages. So it's Anna.Frazetto, F is in Frank, R-A-Z-Z-E-T-T-O. And um, I am open to, you know, reaching out to me on the cell phone too, which actually my LinkedIn has my cell phone information there. So you can reach me that way too. Yeah. And you're full-time in, in Jersey, right? But how often are you down here around DC? Uh, probably about four or five times a year. Okay. So they can even meet you in person. Absolutely. Sure. Yeah. We'd love it. Yeah. All right. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to DC Local Leaders. We'd love to connect with you. Find us on LinkedIn and YouTube by searching DC Local Leaders on Instagram at DC Local Leaders or our website, dclocalleaders.com. You can find the podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Google, or wherever you find great podcasts. Don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe. Until next time.